0: Well, as always, it's such a great joy to be with you in this beautiful place with you beautiful people. Uh, it's particularly gorgeous this time of year, especially if you're from where we're from. Uh, the other day, it was, there was water falling out of the sky. It was such an odd experience. Uh, we, we don't see much of that anymore, but uh, thank you for your warm hospitality. Uh, our other son, uh, who was uh, omitted by Pastor Ryan, but he's here as well. Um, I guess we'll have to work through those issues later. But, uh, but Blake and his family are also here. So all of our grandkids are with us today. It's a great joy. Uh, they are extremely impressed with the bagels. That was the uh, main topic of conversation this morning, uh, was the bagel layout. So thank you. you. You all just don't know how great you have it around here. So yeah, it's a great day. Can we... Open our Bibles to Psalm 21. Psalm 21, and let's read together. Please follow along as I read. Psalm 21. For the choir director, a psalm of David. Lord, Yahweh, the king finds joy in your strength. How greatly he rejoices in your victory. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not denied the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You place a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your victory. You confer majesty and splendor on him. You give him blessings forever. You cheer him with joy in your presence For the king relies on Yahweh through the faithful love of the Most High. He is, watch this, he is not shaken. Your hand will capture all your enemies. Your right hand will seize those who hate you. They will make them burn like a fiery furnace when you appear. The Lord will engulf them in his wrath. The fire will devour them. You will wipe their progeny from the earth and their offspring from the human race. Though they intend to harm you and devise a wicked plan, they will not prevail. Instead, you will put them to flight when you ready your bowstrings to shoot at them. Be exalted, Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your might. Father, this is your word this morning. Through your spirit, protect my mind and then my words, protect our ears and then our understanding that we might know through your spirit what you'd have us know, and then through what we know, you'd help us understand what we are to do as your people. Do a great work because your word is great and because you are great. In the precious name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. 1527 was not an easy year for Martin Luther. According to church historian Steve Nichols, the plague had come to his city. His infant daughter had died within a few months of her birth. He had felt the pain of betrayal, and he was still reeling from the throes of the peasant's war, with both sides feeling like somehow it was all his fault. He had started a movement, and the movement was nearly drowning him. 1527 was not a great year. Luther, over the couple of previous years, had taken up hymn writing. And it was in that year, that troubled year, that he penned one of the most famous hymns of all time. Did we in our own strength confide? Why would we ever do so? Who would consider such a thing? He knew that our God alone is a mighty fortress. Our God alone is a bulwark, never failing. What do we have? We have the Spirit and the gifts. They are ours. Who is on our side? The man of God's own choosing, Christ Our elder brother, our Lord, our Redeemer, Christ Jesus, it is he, Luther said. And then he asserts he must win the battle. That what's more, God's word abides still. What about us? You remember? The body they may kill, his truth abideth still. And then what's the culmination? His kingdom is forever and ever. Amen. How do we stand in difficult days? How do we find the kind of courage, the kind of confidence? How do we find the kind of certainty which will give us the stability when it appears from circumstances that the ground is shifting beneath our feet? Where can we find the kind of stability that echoes the stability we read about in Psalm 21 where it says in verse 7, he will not be shaken. Do you ever feel shaken? Christian and I love coming to Green Pond because we love to hear you sing. Hearing Ryan preach is an additional benefit, but we love to hear you sing. And we all... I was moved this morning as we sang, and I looked around here down front, and the people that were, with all of their passion, they were engaged in worship to lift the great name of our God. But it's easy for us sometimes to sing on Sunday morning. But where do we find stability and certainty? Where do we find a kind of unshakableness in our marriage tensions on Tuesday evenings? or during that doctor visit on Thursday morning, or throughout the week when we experience mockery because we're Jesus followers, when we experience that mockery at work or at school or in the neighborhood, and sometimes maybe even in our extended family. How can we find stability in a world that seems to have gone crazy? Psalm 21 follows Psalm 20. I don't see anyone writing that down. I give you these gems and no one, no one writes that down. Psalm 21 follows Psalm 20. In history, perhaps, as Ryan commented last week, we don't know for sure. But in God's providence, specifically in the Hebrew Psalter, Psalm 21 follows Psalm 20, and you looked last week at Psalm 20, where the people of God are crying out for the deliverance of the king, where they're asking for victory. And Psalm 21 is a response to that. Psalm 20 is asking for God's favor upon the king. Psalm 21 is a response of gratitude because God heard the prayer. And so look at the connections. Look in Psalm 20. Notice the last verse. It says, Lord, give victory to the king. May he answer us on the day that we call. Then look at verse 1 of Psalm 21. Lord, the king finds joy in your strength. How greatly he rejoices in your victory. Look with me uh, back in Psalm 20. Look at verses 4 and 5. Note the language here. May he give you what your heart desires, asking God of the, of the king, May he give you what your heart desires and fulfill your whole purpose. Let us shout for joy at your victory and lift the banner in the name of our God. May the Lord fulfill all your requests. Now go back to Psalm 21 and look at verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not denied the request of his lips. Again, look back in Psalm 20. Look at verse 7. It says, some take pride or trust. Some take pride in the in chariots and others in horses, but we take pride or trust or rely in the name of the Lord, our God. Go down into chapter 21 and look in verse seven, which will be a key verse for us this morning. For the king relies or trusts on the Lord through the faithful love of the most high, he is not shaken. So there's the expectation in Psalm 20 and Psalm 21, there's the exaltation at God's answered prayer, at God's deliverance for his king. So basically, this psalm calls us to worship, as one old commentator said, after the battle. After the battle, after God has given the victory, Psalm 21 is the appropriate stance. The people cried out on behalf of the king for victory. Look at what God has done for his people, and it's a celebration. Now, there's great value in setting spiritual milestones, parents and grandparents. There's great value in our children and our grandchildren hearing of the great ways God has blessed us in the past. And this is, in a sense, a spiritual milestone for the people of Israel. It's an example of what that looks like to publicly set a marker, to publicly acknowledge this is what we ask for, look at what our God did. And the result of that, the the fruit of that in our lives is a sense of stability. It's a sense of confidence. It's a place to stand in uncertain times. I don't need to spend any time this morning convincing you that we live in a chaotic world. That we live in a world that stuns us with its chaos and its, the strangeness of our culture, the things that people profess to believe, the things that so many of us have felt We're normal over the years, that there's no more normality. And the question that we ask as Jesus followers, whether we're young or old, the question that we always tend to ask is, how can we remain unshaken? And we find hints of that in Psalm 21 this morning, so that's what we'll see. So as we look at Psalm 21, we'll start with verse 1, and we'll see that basically it's a call to worship for the people of God. It's a call to worship. Again, the word says, Lord, the king finds joy in your strength. How greatly he rejoices in your victory or your deliverance or your salvation. This is the highest of emotions, and it should be that way. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, hollering hosannas. That's what we ought to be doing. Uh, to be filled with mind, uh, our heart, our body, to be filled with praise and joy, because look at how Good God has been to us look at how great our God is and there's great value even every Lord's Day every Sunday to come together and I was reflecting this morning as we came together as God's people though I don't really know you and you don't know me but it's another opportunity in the regular rhythm of life amid all of the chaos that's around us and sometimes the chaos that's in our own hearts and even our own lives to stop on the Lord's Day and to come together And to devote our attention to the truths that will give us a sense of joy. That cause us to worship even if we've received some of the most difficult news we'll ever hear. We can still come together and on the ground of the gospel as Jesus followers we can lift our voices in praise. There's a significant value in that. And what we find here is the psalmist is calling the people of God, Israel, calling them to worship. It's a call to worship. The focus here obviously is on the king. It's a reference to the king and for what God has done for the king. And you have to think through, as you know better than most churches, you have to think through who is this king and how does the message to this king and Israel connect to us? Well, again, I think you know that primarily this is a message to the Old Testament covenant nation of Israel. And especially in old Israel, under the theocracy of God, the king represented the people as goes the king, so goes the people. The king was a mediatorial representative. And so when the king was addressed, it was not ignoring the welfare of the people. It was a sense that if the king is what the king ought to be, then the blessing of God will come upon his people. This We understand this all the way through under the old covenant. But on a secondary level, again, I know that you know this, since it regards Israel's king, there are messianic echoes here there will be a great king. You well know Israel was what? They were always seeking a better king. And so when you read what's called a royal psalm, which addresses a king, there are elements and hints that have to do not just with that particular king in history, but with the greatest king. Not just with David or one of the sons of David, but with the son of David. And so there are hints of that in this text as well. But also, there's an application for us who are Jesus followers. Though we don't live in the nation of Israel, though we're not citizens of that theocracy, we are surely citizens of a related kingdom. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the way he deals with his people Israel is the same moral basis, the same fundamental existence through which he loves and cares for us. And so therefore, we still live under a king. We live under the great king. We live in an unshakable kingdom. And therefore, even though we don't live sheltered lives, even though we are touched with hardship, indeed, we are called to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. There are lessons here because we have a king. And this king, who is blessed by God and informed by God and who follows God and therefore is is chased after by God, and God uses him for his purposes. This is a picture of what it means for all of us to live in an ultimate kingdom. And God's people are called to worship here. We are called to celebrate him. Now, what do we have to celebrate? Even in troubled times, what do we have to celebrate? Well, let's look at what it says. Because the first thing we're to do, beginning in verse 2, is we're to look back at what our God has done. What our God has done What our God has done on behalf of the king, and therefore, because he did it for the king, it's what our God has done on behalf of his people. Let's look at the text again, and let me just make some comments. Follow along with me, beginning there in verse 2. It says, you have given him his heart's desire. What was his heart's desire? It was victory. It was deliverance. It was salvation. We don't know the specific occurrence of this in the history of Israel, but this was God responding to the prayer of the people and the king. You have not denied the request of his lips. And then there's the word selah, which basically means pause and think about it. Stop and think about it. Why should we think about that? Well, at the very least, probably what we should think about is what these people and the king requested versus what you and I request. The the, the whole significance of a psalm like this is that the king had had aligned himself with the purposes of his God. That's the reason God was pleased to answer this prayer. He had a kingdom agenda as opposed to a self-focused consumerist agenda. Unlike nearly all of the kings in the history of the world, we all know that power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? If that's not in the Bible, it ought to be, right? But the reality is these godly kings, and when God answers the prayer in Israel, he has his purposes But the lesson we're to learn is that here's an example where the king has aligned his agenda with Yahweh, the God of Israel, and therefore God is pleased and delighted to bless him. So the desire and the passion is seen God's kingdom advance, to see God's kingdom protected, as we'll see before we're through, to see God's enemies quashed. Look in verse 2, for you meet him, you meet the king with rich blessings. You place a crown of pure gold on his head. By the way, Matthew Henry said, make no mistake, crowns are at God's disposal. God is sovereign. He raises up. He casts down. And so what this crown of pure gold might be, as you read it and you think about it, and you think about this has been a battle, many people think that what this is is the king has won a victory. Israel has won a victory over an enemy, and the, the crown of that enemy king has been taken and placed on the crown of Israel's king. But I like what one of the Puritans said. He said, David was hardly so weak as to be tickled with a flashing bauble taken from the head of an idolatrous enemy. This is, this is rather an emblem of his dynasty. The fact that God is the one who rules. And God is the one who sets crowns on the heads of kings. And God is pleased to rule over his kingdom and sometimes use men to do so. Look in verse 4. He asks you for life And you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. This is not so much eternal life, although surely that is true. God gives eternal life. We know that. But this is probably physical deliverance from danger, hyperbolic language. The king was in danger in battle, and you've extended his life, length of days. And it also has hints when you're dealing with kings, kings always think about what? They think about their dynasty. They think about their future legacy. And there's a promise here that God is working his purposes for the nation of Israel and the dynasty will be established. Look in verse 5, his glory is great through your victory. And as you read those words, we tend to read kind of reflexively and maybe reactively and we see your glory. We immediately think of God's glory. But notice that's not what it says it says the king's glory speaking to God here the king's glory is reflective of uh, the king's glory your glory his glory is a great victory is your his glory is great through your victory so it's god's victory represents the glory of the king but you see what's going on here it's ultimately god's glory and so god's victory is his glory which he gives to the king in his victory all That verse is trying to get us to see what we need to take away from that is a recognition that when you align yourself with God's agenda, he is pleased to share his glory because he's the one that gets the glory. His glory is great through your victory. You confer, see, you, Yahweh, confer majesty and splendor on him. And then verse 6, you give him blessings forever. You cheer him with joy in your presence, the blessed presence of God. Now watch this, you go back and look at verse 20, and basically the people ask for deliverance or for victory, and the God of Israel is pleased to give so much more than they asked. As Pastor Ryan's friend John Calvin said, this is an illustrious pattern of the generosity of our God, the generosity of our God. They asked for victory, and God gave them so much more through their king." God gave them so much more. And this is what our God does. The underlying assumption here being that we have aligned ourselves with God's agenda, not our own. Now, I wonder if this doesn't come down to an element of trust. I wonder if we're not challenged by the question about whether God will really be faithful to us. Will God really be generous to us? You all surely recognize. This is not a health, wealth, prosperity message. This is not give a little and God will give you much. This is yielding yourself to the plan of God, which sometimes will include hardship and sometimes will include battle. And let's be honest about it. Sometimes will include an element of loss. But God shows himself faithful in ways that are astonishing. And we should look back at what our God has done because that equips us to look forward into the future. This is what this psalm calls us to do. Look back. Set those milestones. Recognize as a follower of Jesus Christ. Recognize where God has been faithful to you. Recognize where you've received the abundance of his grace. Recognize that you as a rebel have been blessed by God who is holy. And how can that happen apart from the glorious gospel? Look back on what your God has done. And this ultimately... Is the basis for worship as we come to verse seven? Look at it. Verse one was a call to worship, but verse seven is the basis for our worship because verse seven says, For the king relies or trusts on the Lord. By the way, an understanding of what you trust is what you are depending on. What are you counting on? That's what you trust in. Are you counting on your own efforts? Are you counting on your best intentions? Are you counting on the fact that? you're checking boxes somewhere. What are you counting on? Are you counting on your own strength, your own discipline? All of those things in and of themselves are in and of themselves legitimate and appropriate, but these are not things we count on. We count on the Lord our God. And this king, the king relies on the Lord through the faithful love of the Most High. He is not shaken. This is the basis for worship. This is the center of the psalm. This is the core of it all. The reason that God is kind to Israel is rooted in his grace, his, look at it, his faithful love. You know, that's a covenant word. His loyal love, his loving kindness, this undeserved favor that God gave the people Israel. You remember over and over again under the old covenant, God would ask them, Why was I kind to you? Not because you were the most upon the earth, not because you were the most skilled, not because you were the most worthy, but I set my favor on you. This is the faithful, loyal love of the Most High. But it's not just a willingness to love. It it would be one thing if our God, perhaps with a small g God, if our God was willing to love us but was not able to love us. And ultimately, was willing to love us, but was not able to save us because we were rebels. But you see what's combined here in verse 7? It's the faithful, loyal love of God at the same time combined with that phrase. you see the title? The Most High. So he has the power. He not only has the willingness, he has the power to save us. He did so for Israel under the old covenant, and he does so for us Those of us who are rebels and who are self-driven, who want to worship ourselves, who want our own way to live, and yet God is faithful to us. He has shown us loyal covenant love, and he has the power to follow through. How could a holy God save rebels like us and still remain holy? See, you have here the seed elements of the gospel of Jesus. And for those of us who will rely on him, not rely on ourselves... Not trust in ourselves but will rely on him we find that we find a stability where we will not be shaken the exalted ruler of the universe is the one who vindicates the innocent and judges the wicked this is the most high so what you've got here in verse 7 is you've got God's transcendence he is the most high and at the very same time you have his eminence because We can rely on him, and he gives us his loyal love, his faithful love. The high king of heaven stoops to cut a covenant with rebels like Israel and with rebels like us. This is the gospel. And I should stop and remind you, whether you've come to this church for 30 years or more, or perhaps this is your first time to ever darken those doors, that this is our only hope, the only hope we will ever have for true life, to escape the judgment of God that we justly deserve. The only hope is in the faithful love of the Most High. And the only way we find that love is by relying on Him, by trusting on Him. By coming to that place in your life where you recognize your sin and your guilt and you acknowledge it before the Holy God, and you place your hope. You cast yourself on the mercy of the court, and you rely upon Jesus and Jesus alone. And I don't know who here or who online needs to hear this today, but this is what's called the good news. This is the gospel, and this is the basis of worship. This is the reason people that are just as flawed as you and me... Just as aware in our heart of hearts of all of our faults and sins and the abiding sinfulness that is still there, how can we hope to come into the presence of a holy God and worship him? It's because this holy God has shown us his faithful love, ultimately, in the person of Jesus Christ. And we can trust in him. The king and the king, standing in the role of God's covenant people, and by application, we're suggesting all of us under the new covenant, the king need not be shaken. Now, I don't know how shaken you end up feeling in life. I thought of it this morning. I know it's a little corny, but we may be stirred, but we're not shaken. We may be stirred. Isn't this sort of what Paul was saying in Second Corinthians? Turn there for a moment. Look at the text in Second Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul deals with these issues. And he talks about what he had gone through, but it's representative of what we go through in a broken world. Second Corinthians chapter 4, you'll note what he says there. As he says in verse number 7, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Because, watch this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. And then he goes on to explain and describe the kind of trials that he'd gone through. And yet he was not, can I say it in a Psalm 21 way? He was not shaken. Because he believed the end of the chapter as well. Look down there. I can't go through chapter 4 of second corinthians without ending with verse 16 therefore we do not give up even though our outer person is destroyed our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory so we do not focus on what is seen but what is unseen for what is seen is temporal what is unseen is eternal we need not be shaken. And folks, what Psalm 21 wants us to know is that there's a sense of certainty we can hold on to that gives us that stability that causes us not to be shaken. Doubt, doubt never brings security. Doubt never produces stability But when you dive into God's word and you see what God has done in the past, it gives you a sense of stability in the gospel of Jesus to recognize that your feet are firm, even though this world may be crumbling around us. This is the promise in verse 7, that the king, because he relies on the Lord, he has this faithful love of the Most High, who is so powerful, and the king is not shaken. I think we stress and we worry and we're fearful in this life because we do not think nearly enough about what God has accomplished in the past, which gives us a guarantee for the future. Psalm 21 says, the battle's been won. And you find security and stability by reflecting on what God has done in the past. But here's the problem. The battle's been won, but in Psalm 21, there are more enemies. There are other enemies on the horizon. And so the psalmist doesn't just stop there with challenging us about what God has done in the past. He goes on and says, look forward to what God will do in the future. And the specific focus of Psalm 21 is what God will do to the enemies of the king or his own enemies. What God will do. Look forward to what our God will do. And you see that beginning in verse 8. These are enemies. They are those who have set themselves in opposition to the God of Israel, to his agenda. And be careful here. This is not mere ignorance. This is the kind of arrogance that causes people to proudly say, Is God really God? These are the enemies that the psalmist is describing. The enemies that have an agenda against God's people Israel We see this all the way through the Old Testament. But look in verse 8. The psalmist says, your hand will capture all your enemies. Your right hand will seize those who hate you. You see, that's the problem. The problem is is that in our rebellion and in our sinfulness, we hate God. Romans 8, 7 refers to this. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It's hatred without a cause. They plan evil, as we'll see down in verse 11. These are the enemies of God. One great Puritan said, if this world could be made as the wicked would have it, if they could bring to pass all the evil that is in their hearts, earth would soon differ but little from hell. Some of us wonder if we're not getting close to that, right? And the problem with this is the worse they are, the better they often think themselves to be. They've concocted a sense of virtue. These who oppose the God of heaven, who mock at his word who laugh at those in history that have tried to be faithful to him. Those of us who assert that there is a level of right and wrong, that there's a standard of appropriate behavior, whether it be in sexuality or whether it be in the way we treat one another, whether it be in what we believe about God's word, these are those who set themselves in opposition. And Psalm 21 is a terrifying warning to them. This is what the God of heaven will do. Likely this is the people celebrating of what God will do through the king. Verse 8 is your hand, the king's hand. But, but there's also this sense of, remember, when the king acts, Yahweh acts. And so that's what we have here. Your hand will capture all your enemies. Your right hand will seize those who hate you. Verse 9, you will make them burn like a fiery furnace when you appear, literally when your face is there, your angry presence. The Lord will engulf them in his wrath, The fire will devour them. Remember in Revelation, the smoke of their torment rises forever. They're utterly consumed. Look in verse 10, you will wipe their progeny from the earth and their offspring from the human race, though they intend, by the way, that's one of the worst threats that anyone in the ancient world could have ever heard. But we can understand it, can't we? This is the judgment. This is the result of judgment. Not that our grandchildren are judged for our sins, but if we live lives as the enemy of God, the tendency will be that our children will also be God's enemies because that's what they've learned. And there is judgment and danger there. Verse 11, though they intend to harm you and devise a wicked plan, they will not prevail. And I wonder sometimes, doesn't it look like they've prevailed? Doesn't it look like if you look at the world around us, if you're keeping score, doesn't it look like we're behind? Doesn't it look like that the enemies of God are prevailing? Psalm 21 is still true. And don't miss this. Psalm 21 says, when you feel that way, When you are confronted with the enemies of God, as you look forward and you recognize that there is this systemic opposition to the truth of God and to God's rule and God's reign, what you do is you look back and you say, what has our God done? And in looking back to see what our God has done, it helps equip you to be solid and to be stable as you confront the reality of enemies today and what God will do in the future now, look at the promise in verse 12. Instead, you will put them to flight when you ready your bowstrings to shoot at them. And the CSB here flattens out the metaphor a little bit. In the Hebrew, it's this idea of the bowstring in front of your face. A pretty graphic picture. That bow is aimed right for your face. Now, this is hyperbolic, extravagant language. But one of the things you've learned through Revelation is that. As difficult as the symbolism might be, the reality is going to be worse. And that's what you have here. You have this promise that there will be ultimate destruction, and that ultimate destruction will be total. It's a warning. Now I have to stop and acknowledge that what warfare looks for us, what it looks like, we have to be careful. I don't suggest you go home this morning and that neighbor across the street that thinks you're crazy for spending a beautiful Jersey Sunday morning in church, and they laugh at you a little bit for the way you live your life as a Jesus follower, I don't suggest that you go and quote Psalm 21 to them this afternoon. I don't think we should think of the flesh and blood people around us that have been influenced by this system. I'm not suggesting that they are our enemies. We are to love our neighbor's. But we have to recognize that people everywhere around us, and perhaps even sometimes we ourselves, are influenced by this culture that sets itself against the God of heaven in pride. And that's the enemy. Ephesians 6 tells us this, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers. This is a spiritual battle. And we have to recognize that there is a desperately dangerous warning to the people who want to set themselves up as God's enemy. And in the history of the nation of Israel, from time to time, you saw evidences of that, where God destroyed the enemies of Israel. And all of that is just, each one of those instances is to be an example for us, a vignette of what God will ultimately do for people who will say, you are not my God, I rule my own life. It's a dangerous reality. So we look at what God has done in order to understand what God will do. And this drives us to worship. And the reality is simply this. The battle continues. Remember when I told you that profound truth that Psalm 21 follows Psalm 20? Well, Psalm 22 follows Psalm 21. And what is Psalm 22 about? Now, catch this. Psalm 20, we pray that God would give our king victory. Psalm 21, God gave our king victory. How great is that? We can trust him in the future. Psalm 21, 22 begins with, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you think, did someone get these Psalms out of order? I mean, Psalm 21 is a victorious song. It's a song and psalm. It's a psalm of worship. And then in the next psalm, you end up with a sense of despair, at least in a temporal sense. A sense of overwhelming pressure. A sense of oppression. Because folks, that's what it's like to live in this broken, sinful world. And we know the ultimate victory We can look back at what our God has done, and we can say with confidence what he will do in the future, but that just simply means that there will be another battle around the corner as long as we are here. There will be an enemy of God that we will encounter. We will live in this systemic, overwhelming world system which has no use for the God that we worship, and we have to recognize that. What happens is we get our eyes on our circumstances. We look at the current skirmishes, and it looks as though our enemies are winning, but lost battles do not mean ultimate defeat. And the good news is we don't fight in our own strength. The good news is the king is assured this victory because he trusts in the Lord. What did we see last week in Psalm 20? Don't trust in chariots, don't trust in horses, don't trust in your own accomplishments. But we trust in the Lord because he fights the battle for us. And you know the great thing about that? Is as we think about these battles, and what battles am I talking about? I'm talking about battles with our sinful flesh. I'm talking about battles in our marriages that are not what they ought to be. I'm talking about battles in our families where we have conflicting views. I'm talking about battles with the economy, battles with disease and death. Whatever battle you're facing, the reality of it is that when we are weak, And when we profess to our God, we just can't go on. You recognize what the Bible tells us. That's when God delights to take charge. That's when God delights to do what? Remember? God delights to show his strength in our what? Weakness. In our time of battle, when the pressures are coming in from all sides, and you feel ill-equipped to go on, that's precisely the place where you throw your trust upon the God of heaven, who has shown himself to be the most high, verse 7, and also to be the one who loves us faithfully. And he's proven that for us in Jesus Christ. So we look at what God has done in the past, and we look at these terrible enemies, and we wonder, what, how will God do that? And our role is simply to own our weakness and to trust him, and in our weakness, he shows his strength. And that is the source of stability and hope. So what we're saying here is, even though Psalm 21 says one enemy is down, there are more to come. So what do we do? Well, in verse 13, after we've had a call to worship and we've seen the basis for worship, we find finally a commitment to worship in Psalm 13. Look at it again. Be exalted, Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your might. God's enemies are still here. There are still battles to fight down the road, but we look at what God has done in the past. We know what he'll do in the future, and we are committed to worship. We will sing and praise your might. If we had time, I'd have you turn to Hebrews 12, where we read these words, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And the confidence we have to remain unshaken is the same confidence that Israel had under the old covenant. And we have as the church of Jesus today. And that is at the end of the day, we are in Christ And it is his power that wins the battles. And that gives us the assurance that we can be unshaken. That we can stand firm. It's the assurance of faith. It's a commitment to worship. It's a commitment to say, as verse 13 says, God, Lord, be exalted in your strength. Because your strength is where I stand. And in your strength is where I find the ability to be unshaken. God's got this. God's got this. How do we know? Because we see what he's done in the past and we read what he's promised to do in the future. If you've ever paid any attention to investment documents, whether it's a website or an email or the kind of papers you sign even at a bank for investments or a CD on every one of those documents, you find a little sentence. Sometimes it's a long paragraph. It's the fine print, right? But one of the things that is almost always there is the acknowledgement that past performance is not a guarantee of future results, right? They're all covering themselves. They're protecting themselves, right? Put your money with us and it's going to grow. Oh, but by the way, in the fine print, the fact that we grew money in the past doesn't mean we're going to grow your money, and we've looked at the last 18 months and we've all experienced that, right? But what Psalm 21 tells us is that when we talk about our God, especially in his grace in the gospel, what we find is that with our God through his gospel, past performance is a guarantee of future results. Past performance is a guarantee of future results. When you are living life and you feel pressed in, and you wonder about the battles, you can know that there is the promise of your God for the future because he has shown himself faithful in the past. And of course, ultimately, for the followers of Jesus, that all culminates on what he's done for us on the cross. This is his great love. It's where his faithful, loyal love was poured out for rebels like us. And if we will trust him, rely on him like the king... We will find stability. 20 years after Luther wrote his hymn, A Mighty Fortress, he preached his last sermon on January 17th, 1546. Right after he preached, he learned of a crisis in Eisleben, his hometown where he grew up. Luther by now was an old man. On that day, he wrote a letter in which he declared to the recipient that he was old, weary, lazy, worn out, cold, chilly, and over and above a one-eyed man. Evidently, he had cataracts. Life had been hard for Luther. He finished his letter with the wish that half dead as I am, I might be left in peace. But he would not be left in peace because the problem in Islaban needed a solution. And so In the middle of winter, in that time so many years ago, when they were victims of the elements, he traveled back to the city of his birth. The river journey was difficult. Ice flows that had destroyed the bank or the dock. They had to unload the boat into the water in the freezing cold. And from what we can tell historically, it looks as though he caught pneumonia. He got to the town, he addressed the issues, the conflict, but was not able ultimately to fight the illness. Word came back to Wittenberg, to his wife Katie, how desperately ill he was. And she anxiously wrote to him, expressing her wish that she could take care of him. Luther replied that he had a better caretaker than her. A dying old man, he wrote these words, some of the last words he ever wrote. He said he had a caretaker who, quote, lies in a manger and nurses at his mother's breast. Yet he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What's the catechism tell us? Where is our only hope in life and death? It is in our Lord Jesus the Most High, who loves us with a faithful love. And that's the ground of our worship. And it's the promise for our future because we see what he has done in the past and we are unshaken as we look to the future. I pray today that we'll all have that sense of stability and security. In the battles that are before us. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. We ask who that might be. Christ Jesus. It is he. The Lord of hosts is his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. In this, Father, may we take heart, May we be encouraged. May we have a new and fresh sense of stability because the one who trusts in the Lord has experienced the loyal, faithful love of the Most High and he will not be shaken. We claim that promise today through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.